You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. What's our topic for today, Jared? Today, we are going to talk about <laughs> respecting the Bible for what it is, parentheses, and isn't. And isn't. Both and of isn't. those things. Because what we're all about here is what is the Bible? And what do we do with it? And what do we do with it? Which are these eternal questions. Yeah. But I think part of the reason this topic has come up for this episode is because I think there's a, a, a reorientation that I've been going through where, you know, I've been having this episode on the making of the modern mindset. And sometimes I, I can be critical of your podcast series. Yeah. The the little mini series. And I can be critical of modernity and the limitations of modernity. And yet, I need to have a corrective lens to help me recognize also, though, that I respect the tools of modern critical scholarship. In fact, I'm assuming it mm-hmm. sometimes in my criticism of modernity. And so I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of critical scholarship, and I just think maybe it would be good for us to talk about some of that. Yeah, so so I guess modernity being critical of itself, in a sense, is that... Well, it's... it's I think sometimes there's this idea that we can throw the baby out with the bathwater and mm. instead recognizing like, yeah, modernity produced some really good things, even when it comes to reading our Bible that have been really helpful for us in mm-hmm. interpretation. And yet it can still be limited. Right. So one of those things is, and, and we've talked about this a bunch of times before, we're not going to beat a dead horse here today, but the idea of context, of understanding something of the context of these biblical writers, because it can really help us from saying things that are just pretty whack about the Bible, you know? Well, and, and I think that's the heart of, of this episode, is let's dig into and talk about this tension between respecting the original context and the authorial intention. What were the authors trying to convey? What were they trying to mean when they wrote it, and how we understand it and make it relevant for us today. Mm-hmm. That is a, a perennial problem yeah. and, and tension. And, you know, we just had Dale Allison on the podcast, and he talks about, and you, you frame it this way, and it reminds me often of, of John Levinson, because that's the first writer I, I read that really wrestled with this. How do we be Christians in, an, in a religious sense and historians and experts in modern critical scholarship. Mm -hmm. How do those things go together? Because it's not obvious. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and 
She said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That, that's in a way the modern tension, I think. And I, I mean, how long has this been, this modern tension been going on? That's a good question. It's, it's longer than just a couple hundred years. But it's really with the rise of things like, well, you know, science and the Enlightenment and things like that, that gave people more of a historical consciousness. I think, you know, modern people have more of a historical consciousness than, say, John Calvin, even though John Calvin had a historical consciousness. It wasn't informed by things like archaeology or advanced science in any sense. Well, the data hadn't rolled in yet. They hadn't rolled in yet. And especially the big one is comparative religions, what we know about other religions of the ancient world. So we can look at the time of Jesus and understand something about Greco-Roman civilization and religion and how those two things, you know, are not unrelated in the gospel. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it is a big tension that we live with in the modern period. And, and not to get off topic here, but the struggle, I think, the tension a lot of people feel is that they have inherited a faith in from their churches that is still very much pre-modern in many respects. It it doesn't know what to do with science. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does? hasn't even integrated the data and evidence f- that we've gotten from all these modern advancements of archaeology, historical data, right. and scientific data, all these sorts of things. They haven't even really wrestled with that yet. And that's that's the big divide, I think, between, again, just let me use the labels, folks. Don't take them uh, you know, too black and whitish. But between fundamentalism and, and, and liberalism, you have fundamentalists have sort of done an apologetic end around historical problems. And liberals have gone right through it and had what uh, Walter Wink, a New Testament professor, calls an acid bath. <laughs> and, and, and the naivete has been sloughed off. But, you know, now liberals have been saying, we're not really sure what to do anymore with this faith. But then you have also people in fundamentalism who are becoming awakened to the modern problem mm-hmm. of, of, of evidence and things like that. And so we have these two groups that really have very similar DNAs, you know, but they're approaching this historical thing in very different ways. That tension is still very much with people. Mm-hmm. It's with me. It's with you. Right. You know, I I haven't gotten over this yet. It's you know, I don't I don't cry myself to sleep, but I still think about it a lot. How how do you maintain a tradition which is essentially a pre modern tradition in the wake of modern developments of thought that challenge that pre-modern tradition. Yeah. And how do you do that? That's that's yeah. a big thing. And we, we've talked about that, I think, in a few episodes. So, I think it'd be good for us to drill down and get very practical in this episode. Because for what I've been thinking about, and, and, it, and frankly, just to be a little introspective about the podcast itself, is I think about this sometimes with our episodes, of how do we draw the distinction between the theology we find within the Bible itself? Mm-hmm. And the theological implications that we can extrapolate from it today. Right. And I think that sounds really nuanced, and I think it may take some time to unpack exactly what we mean by that. Mm -hmm. So, there is a view of God 
that the ancient people who are referenced in the Bible had, that, that the authors of the Bible had, they had a view of God, and that gets imprinted on in the Bible. And then we have a certain view of God, and those theological implications aren't the same mm-hmm. as what the ancients thought of God. Right. And I just think that sometimes in our effort to be biblical, whatever that means, we can disrespect that original imprint yeah. of how they thought of God. And we can make it seem like the ancients are on our side right. with whatever <laughs> the the social or justice or ethical or moral topic of the day is, we can disrespect that original intention. Mm-hmm. And I think the the thing that helped me was understanding modern critical biblical scholarship. That gave me that distance I needed so that I could actually respect it on its own terms. Mm-hmm. I don't know if right. that's making sense. No, and, and but then you know if if you live too much in his, the original historical meaning, however difficult that is sometimes to carry out, like you know the author's intention is a very difficult thing to uncover, right? The best we have is a text from which we extrapolate a possible historical intention because we can't ask authors. Right. And then authors aren't always the best interpreters of their own material, which, you know, literary critics will tell us. But, you know, we we have this um, rather uh, difficult situation of having a very different view of even the nature of reality Mm -hmm. than these ancient writers. And that's the ever-present tension. How do we embody and live with and find meaning, deep meaning, in this tradition, which for most of its history was not living where we live. Right. And then getting really practical about, you know, we we need to respect the original intention, but then how do we do theology? It's easier just to say, well, their intention is what we think it is. Right. And that you can make the connection that way very nicely, but it will eventually unravel. Right. And so maybe there's another way of doing it. And by the way, folks, we're not going to have final answers to this, are we, Jared? <laughs> Everyone was going to be shocked that we're not going to have. They've I come know. To they're expect. so used to these clear answers we give. But, you know, folks, isn't it just worthwhile to have discussions about this stuff well, and I just to articulate the problem? Especially in this case, because. I think the problem might be even in the questions we ask. So, a, a very again, some of what we're saying may feel abstract. And so, let me bring a very practical yes, example. Yes, We might ask the question, is the Bible for or against abortion? That's obvious. And, and that <laughs> question itself is problematic yeah. because of the things we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because when we use the word abortion, we mean something very specific. And we're trying to ask, what does the Bible have to say about something that frankly, wasn't the same kind of thing that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so, when we do that with all kinds of things, what what does the Bible have to say about immigration laws? Mm-hmm. What does the Bible, you can be on the left or the right politically to, to right. ask these questions. What does the Bible have to say about X or about Y or about Z? When we ask those questions, we're stuck in this problem that yes. we've been talking about. Right. Or climate change, or I mean, yep. n- name your favorite topic. I mean, name something that means something to you. So, is it then... even fair? I'm going to ask you this: Is it even fair to ask that question? What does the Bible have to say about climate change? Let's say. No, I don't think it's fair at all. I, I, I think it's 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 you're going to start looking for things to justify what you already think. I would rather say, 
is there wisdom in our tradition that we can engage today for understanding a problem that they never envisioned? Well said. Are we done with the podcast now? That's it. Just says, that's it. That's it. But that's my opinion. And I know that that might not be super popular, but you know, I I don't look at abortion, for example, as a biblical issue in terms of there are passages. You know, that's you know, people have tried and it's not that the Bible informs their understanding of abortion. It's that their understanding of, of, of abortion drives them to read the Bible in a certain way. And I just want to say to that, just let's be aware of what we're doing, mm-hmm. right? There may be other reasons for some people to be really against abortion, but, but those are, let's say, more ethical reasons, or I'm going to even say theological reasons, the way you understand God or the nature of life or things like that, or human freedom. You know, I mean, there are different angles to come at that, but you can't find a verse to address this problem the way we understand it today, because it's the problem the way we understand it today. Right. Right. So... Yeah. And maybe maybe another way of saying it is the Bible doesn't address modern moral questions because it's neither a modern nor a moral book. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it comes down to what is the Bible when we ask the question, what does the Bible say about X, Mm -hmm. we've already assumed that it has something directly to say to us today in the modern world, and that it's geared toward this moral or ethical purpose. Right. And I think a way of expressing the idea is, I mean, probably many of you have, have heard people talk about the biblical teaching on the Bible is teaching something. I'm making a lot of assumptions that it's there to teach us about X, Y, and Z. And it teaches us about, well, what's it teaching us? It's teaching us whatever the Bible wants to talk about. It's therefore, it's, it's, it becomes our authoritative guide. And I do want to suggest that if that's the case, we really should be six-day creationists. I think Genesis 1 is teaching that from the perspective of this writer, that's my important qualification, that Creation is a six-day affair with a seventh day of rest. It's morning and evening. I, I take it from the point of view of the writer, I take that to be somewhat a plain statement. It's just that today we have to wrestle with things like science, you know, and and how do we do that? So I don't want to put science onto Genesis 1 and say it's talking about day age theory, you know, that it's, it's talking about epics and, and evolution. If we really theory. understood it, what the original authors meant, we would know that they meant what day we, age, a day is an age. Right. If we really got, and, and the only thing driving us is not the text itself, it's our need to have the Bible teach us, right? So what we've actually done, though, is not adhere to biblical teaching, we've actually imposed our conclusions onto the biblical text. That, I mean, I, I think... This is not uncommon. Who doesn't do that on some level? But it's about being hermeneutically aware. Oh, wait a minute. I just did that, didn't I? So, what are the implications of that? So, you know, I I think there's so many topics like this. Abortion is one, and and creation is one. And you mentioned immigration. Yeah, immigration, where we we talk about just with a lot of refugee crises and things like that. It is like we're going back to the Bible to support our activities and actions. And I, I think sometimes I cringe, regardless of, of where the argument is, whether it's my position or a position I disagree with, when we, what I would call it, disrespect the original intentions of, of the text, where it's, it's clear, at least in my mind, that this isn't what this is talking Whatever about. Whatever it's about, it's not about this. Right. 
Right. Right. And sometimes that's just even a practical reality of how could it be? It's a modern problem. It's mm-hmm. a construct that we deal with. Mo- the idea of political like nation states is different. Exactly the right. Policies yeah. are right. different. And so right. I don't know what we gain from that other than maybe it's this holdover of treating the Bible. And I say holdover more from a progressive standpoint. I think from a, a more fundamentalist religious perspective, it is this, mm-hmm. but thinking of the Bible as this authoritative thing mm-hmm. out of which we have to ground all of our moral decisions in it. It's it, it, because it essentially speaks directly to us today. Right. right. And so I do, I think sometimes I can be maybe even harder on my, my progressive friends because it seems like they're still doing that, even though they don't even hold that view of the Bible anymore. Mm-hmm. That's almost like this right. hangover. Yes. Right. Of it's maybe like a, a hermeneutical hangover. Yeah. Or carryover. So, yeah. Where we still have to <laughs> have to. Well, of course they're it. drinking probably because they're <laughs> progressive. So that's fine. But that's just a, a literal hangover. That's not the hermeneutical yeah. kind. Um, so, I, yeah. And I think that's, it's worth bringing up because it reminds me a little bit of Nietzsche where, you know, Nietzsche kind of says, we're still in the modern world. We're still operating as though there's a God. And I don't know if you guys realize that yet. Like once mm-hmm. you realize that we've killed God, this is like, this is going to be pretty scary. Like you can't ground it mm-hmm. in this anymore. And I feel like sometimes as progressive Christians, they, they will do that too, where it's mm-hmm. like, no, you, you'd realize you got rid of that authoritative understanding of the Bible yeah, and yet you're still kind of trying to ground all of your ethical and moral proclamations in it. In it, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I just don't know if that's being intellectually honest. No, it's not being intellectually dishonest, or maybe not aware. It's, I think it's more not aware. I think right. it's more of a reflex, you know. And yeah, and I think sometimes you know what happens with a lot of people they have the crises of faith because they become aware. Mm-hmm. It's not because, you know, they read some book and that made them become godless or something. It just, they became aware, and that's true deconstruction. You know, they became aware of the faults within their own system. They said, oh, crap, what do I do now, right? Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. 
You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So, I mean, but, you know, back to the original author thing, um, you know, it's it's... It's important with respect to um, you know refugees, for example. The Israelites weren't refugees when they came out of Egypt. They were delivered by God, and the only reason they hung out for forty years is because they were disobedient. But they had a land they were going to. They were, they were by definition not refugees. They were going back to a land that they claimed as their own. Right? Jesus was not a refugee when he you know the Holy Family was going down to Bethlehem or that down to Egypt. The, well, first down to, you know for to be born right, and then you know but then going down to Egypt they it was a flight, but it, it was not in any respect a, a refugee status like we think of today. But again, see the thing is that I think that personally we should be really willing, especially a rich country should really have their arms open wide to help people who are suffering under political regimes. I'm just saying, I don't think I need the, a Bible verse to support that. What I, what I think, I mean, and, and you feel free to disagree, Jared, but I think what can support that is a broader engagement of, let's say, Christian theology over the ages, and not just Christian, but Jewish theology too. And if you want to throw in other religious faiths, go right ahead. But I think there are other rationales for why we should be against refugees instead of a biblicistic one, because that I don't think that's that's just making the text a tool for what we already think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's often what we do, right? The, the Bible is a tool— even if you come back to thinking about what I'm hearing you say in the context of that uh, Wesleyan quadrilateral that we bring up quite mm-hmm. a bit, is to say we may come to the conclusion that as Christians, we should maybe have this policy toward mm-hmm. refugees. And when we say that, I feel like the the conservative Protestant answer, the, pro- the answer I would have gotten, the reason we can do that is because we have the straight beeline to the Bible. Right. Right. But actually, the quadrilateral is helpful to say, no, but what does our tradition say mm-hmm. historically? What does our experience say? What does reason say? Mm-hmm. Those all can be theological. Right. That can all be because we're Christians. Right. It's just that this this hyper sola scriptura that we got handed to us has caused us not to be able to see how valuable all those other things are. Right. Forgive the hobby horse moment here, but this is, you know, the history of Judaism is not a simplistic thing, just like Christianity isn't. But you ask a Jew, even a conservative Jew, what do we do about this ethical issue? And they're not going to run to find a proof text in their scripture. They'll anchor something there, but it's there's a whole Jewish Talmudic discussion that has happened, and not just Talmudic, but beyond that, that's happened to basically inform them because 
the the faith is always anchored, but it's always evolving and changing too because times change mm-hmm. and situations change. And it's that in creative engagement with the text. See, that's I love that. Right. And a sort of a creative engagement with trajectories of the text. But I want to understand those trajectories as much as possible as coming out of the biblical writer was saying something for that moment. Right. How can we bring that into conversation with our own moment in time? And I think that's the discussion that's been a part of Judaism and Christianity for probably 2,500 years. Yeah, you know what? Two words come to mind when you described it that way, which I think I'm, I've been looking for these maybe principles, and I, I think a few of them are coming into focus. One, we've mentioned it, is awareness. I think one thing I like about the cre- the way that I often engage with Jewish writers in their creative interpretations is they're all very self-aware of what they're doing. They're not pretending to anchor that creative interpretation in the Torah. They are very self-aware that they are tagging this on to the end of a very rich history of tradition and creative re-engagement with that text over time. So I think awareness is critical. And I think Christians often lack that awareness Mm -hmm. because we were taught that that's not okay to do. Mm -hmm. So we do it, (laughs) we just pretend we don't do it. So we're we're incentivized not to be self-aware of what we're doing because it would actually make it less than Mm -hmm. if we did that. But the second, I think, is, and this is a, a word I think we'll hear more and more from you about, is adaptable. It's that mm. the Jewish engagement often is more adaptable to new data, new understandings. There, there's a mechanism where we can fold in new information into our tradition that I think, at, at least fundamentalists, um, as I would have grown up with, we would have not had that adaptability. Mm-hmm. The, we, our faith isn't resting on how do we engage in modern problems in faithful ways. It is how do we impose the once-for-all truth we have on our culture? Right. Yep. Which does not lead to adaptability. Right. There's no need for it. What are we adapting to? Well, we have the it's truth. It's also dangerous to do that. Well, and then if you can even hear it in the language when I say we impose, there is a almost a colonizing impulse built into that. Mm-hmm. Right. And it becomes a power tool. That, and that's one of the downsides, right. one of the dangers of not doing, let's say, the contextual work of trying to understand these texts. Again, bringing that, those texts into different situations historically, that's difficult to do. And people write commentaries, and people have traditions of how they do that. But still, to work with a historical meaning, let's say, as best as we can tell. At least, again, it's not so, it's not so much, this is the one historical meaning. But there are some that you just have to rule out. Right. You know, the Bible is not talking about X. You can use this passage if you want to, to talk about something you already think is true, but let's not kid ourselves. We're not getting that from this text, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, for me, one of the things I've been thinking about recently, because I'm looking at some scientific things for this book that I'm, I just finished, uh, and don't get too happy about that because I don't really know science very well, but I'll talk about it for several chapters in my book. So yeah, knowing about stuff hasn't stopped you from talking. I know, before. never, never. I made a career out of it actually. So but it's you know it's it's creation care, climate change and things like that, which I think are very, very real. And I think Christians should be very they should be on the forefront of saying this planet is a gift. What are we doing? And I don't think we need to anchor that in a biblical principle or a biblical verse. I don't think 
giving humans uh, dominion over the planet is supportive of climate change activism. I don't think things like the year of Jubilee is, you know, where you sort of let the land regroup a little bit. Um, I don't think that's about caring for the planet because the whole point is to care for the Israelites. You, you want to have good crops and stuff, just let the land lie fallow for a year and then start up again. So I, I don't think there's a need to sort of connect this. You know, Paul, creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, I think, whatever the passage is in Romans 8. Again, that's a very theological, eschatological statement. I don't see what that has to do remotely with climate change. But I still think it's a very true and real thing, but for a different sort of sets of reasons, and one of which is just bringing evolution into it right at the outset, we're all connected. You know, every living thing has DNA. I don't quite get how it works, but it's adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine. They're all grouped together, but in different orders and in different, like, uh, numbers of genes and all that kind of stuff that I don't understand. But we're all connected. You know, we have, like, what is it, 99% of apes' DNA we share. I think mice, it's like 75%. You know, I, I did not know this until I started reading, but we share 50% of our DNA with cabbage. Think about that. Which explains to me why some of my students can fail an open note test, but that's another issue entirely. But So the point is that here's one reason why we should care for our planet. We're all, all of life has the same code. We're all plants, you know, bugs, everything. We're so connected. And if we are the most conscious of beings, and we are, for that reason, we have a responsibility to to do the abstract thinking necessary to advocate for this world that we live in. But I do not need a Bible verse to do that, because that's taking things... I, I think that's expecting the Bible to do too much. And the bottom line is that I don't care if the Bible said the opposite, I would still want to do this, <laughs> you know, because I think it's true and right. And I think it's... You know, I don't expect biblical writers 2,000 years ago to have even had a conversation about this. So, I, I think even in the way that you're saying that, it makes assumptions about what the Bible is, because again, I, I just keep, I can't get out of my head my presuppositionalism, right? Which is this idea in in some of, I think, both of our backgrounds of, well, what grounds you to even say that something is right and true? If you don't have the Bible as this infallible grounding why should I believe you when you say that that we should advocate for creation? You know, why Why should I? And so, I think that perfectionist thinking that we have to have this infallible grounding for anything we know and do on a moral front yes. is often what's feeding this desire to go grounded in the text. And I understand the argument. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a good thing to have, sure. but the problem is, if you don't have the Bible, how are you going to ground your morality? And my response is, are you asking me to ground my morality in the Bible? Because there are a lot of things there, you know, I mean, the Bible assumes the continuation of slavery. Yeah, if you do truly ground your morality in the Bible in a a plain way, it's likely that you will get arrested soon. Right, and you should be, you know, and for a very long time. But, you know, it's, it's, the response is, like, for example, okay, slavery, even in the New Testament, it's assumed by Paul, right? But people say, yeah, but that's not a biblical teaching. Well, what is it then? <laughs> a suggestion? You know, how, how do we determine teaching? And that's a very slippery thing, because a teaching, something gets the label a teaching, 
if it's deemed consistent with a certain theological outlook, right? Well, so, there's already a filter by which we're deciding. The filters are always there. Right. They're always there. Even even a literal interpretation, that's a filter, and you don't interpret everything literally, and you have reasons why you don't do that. So, yep. the Bible becomes more of a conversational resource, really, than this authoritative thing that is determining all these, let's say, ethical questions. And, and of course, what started this whole conversation is that trying to respect, let's say, not just say, let's not say the the author's intention, because that's hard to nail, but just the otherworldness and antiquity of it, respecting that will at least make us very self-conscious about what we're doing when we're sort of imposing our own agenda onto the Bible. And then when somebody says, I think you're imposing a modern agenda on the Bible, at least we should take a moment to reflect on that and to pause and to say, you know, I didn't think, I guess maybe I am. I wasn't sure that I was doing that. Yeah, that that space of humility that allows us to say, you know what, you might be right. Let me do a little more investigating into that. Yeah. How am I maybe projecting my own agenda. And again, those intentions aren't always malicious. Yeah, right. Those intentions are often, I want to do good, and I feel like I need to ground it in the This Bible. is the only way I know how to do good. Right. Right, yeah. I have and, to ground it in the Bible, and that motivates me and inspires me to mm-hmm. do that. I just think that we don't, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, so to speak. Like, we don't, we don't have to do it that way right. to be motivated. But we can be grounded in the broader Christian tradition. Right. Like, there are a lot of good things to say about that. And I think learning to allow that to be a good enough grounding for me is more of the mm-hmm. work to do. A a less absolutist kind of grounding, but one that's more maybe willing to be in conversation. And that's what, you know, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, again, is is really quite a striking bit of wisdom. It, well, it doesn't tell you what to do. Of course it doesn't. That's the whole point. But you're engaged in community thinking about reason and tradition and scripture and... Experience. Experience. Thank you. The big one. Yeah. So, and, and you know, the, the three-legged stool of the Episcopal Church is a very similar notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so scripture's there, and it's there for a reason. You can't get away from scripture, and you shouldn't want to, but... It's not like a plain reading of the Bible that gives you theological knowledge. It's it's who you are as a person. It's when and where you were born. It's it's the influences of your life. It's your ability to exercise reason. And an example of exercising reason for me is I understand why Genesis 1 talks about creation the way that it does because it's an ancient document and it's participating in an ancient world and it's how people understood things. I've just applied reason to that. You've explained it away. No, I haven't explained it away. If you take that literally, you're explaining it away, right? So, I mean, but, and, but we can have a reasonable discussion on that and, and it'll be a lot determined by our larger worldviews, our experiences, our traditions, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and I think it does go back to, you know, we use this word worldview, which given my background in Christian higher education, it makes me shudder a little bit. But I do think there is something to say for we come to the table always and already with some perspective of how the world works, mm-hmm. what principles are at play. So it is this, we we can't get away from that. We will always have it. But I do feel like there's this mutual movement where we're always interpreting the world by it, but we're also able to create these little spaces. And this is why I think maybe we both are so interested in humility and curiosity, because I think those are good tools to open this space mm-hmm. where our experience of the world can actually critique 
our worldview mm-hmm. and shift it just a little bit. Right, right. And that's that mutual interplay. If I mean, if we're not aware, again, there's that word again, that we have a worldview, that we have a perspective on the world, then we won't ever have that space that can critique that worldview mm-hmm. or that perspective. And then there's a commercial for deconstruction because a deconstruction can make you aware of the inadequacy of your current worldview. That doesn't mean you try to jump for the perfect one. You just take that journey and see where it goes and grow as a human being as a result without achieving absolute knowledge. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So at the risk, I want to have a a real live example here because as we're talking, I keep drawing connections to the Adam and Eve story. Yeah. As we're talking about this. And so I almost hesitated to bring it up because I'm like, well, maybe I'm doing the very thing we're talking about here. But again, for me, it's illustrative. It is a, it's content that we can use to sharpen our understanding, to be thinking about things. And I think we do this with literature and with story all the time. And so I think I want to bring it more into, well, we can't not, not that we can't do that. It's just that what if we did it more on the level, like I make all these other connections culturally between literature and movies and other things that enrich how I see the world. That's why we have these stories. And so I think it's not that we don't want to draw connections between our experience and the experiences we find in the Bible. 
It's that we want to be aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah. And maybe that it maybe it needs to change because the way I understood those connections in the past didn't allow for differences of opinion, didn't allow for humility, didn't allow for curiosity and creativity. Mm-hmm. It didn't allow for these things that now I think are important to being Christian. Yeah. You know, I just, over the past few days, I just read a, a short story by uh, Tolstoy called The Death of um, Ivan Ilyich, which is a, I never, a, a friend of mine said, you got to read this. So I read it. It was fantastic. But the thing is that I, throughout, I was connecting it to my own existence. But I was doing so recognizing that I'm reading a late 19th century Russian novel. And I was uh, trying to imagine that moment, that space, even the names themselves. And I imagined them in, in, in the way houses I imagined were decorated back then in the 19th century, right? And the kind of, like, there was this whole upward mobility success orientation, at which I could connect to mine, but theirs were different because they had different uh, titles for where these people went on each stage of their success. And my point is that I, I actually connected with it by letting it be that other story back there and not saying, like, well, this means me. <laughs> this means my time, right? And, you know, reading The Lord of the Rings, the same thing. You know, you get a lot out of it. And boy, the riders of Rohan were brave going after the orcs. But I'm not thinking, who are the orcs in my life? I'm not thinking I want to get a horse. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's something that that story makes me think about my life differently, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the Bible does that too. And of course, the question, and a legitimate question people would raise is what makes the Bible any different? I think it's because of the content of the story more than anything, but it's not that it has this immediate connection to us. We have to work at it. And part of that working at it is trying to understand, just let the Bible be this ancient thing. And then how do we connect to our reality, but we're not taught to read the Bible that way, most right. of us. And again, for me, we talk about having a high view of Scripture is often assumed to be that direct connection. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've learned is a high view of Scripture, for me, is respecting the otherness of it, respecting Paul for who Paul was and the world that Paul lived in. For me, that's treating the Bible with respect. And it's ironic that by doing that, I'm often accused of disrespecting the Bible. Mm. Like, the respectable thing to do is just to, is to consume Paul and Jesus and the New Testament and the Old Testament and put it under my experience, rather mm-hmm. than just letting it be what it is and having a relationship with it. Right. And I think what's wrapped up in that is the notion of biblical authority. If you have that direct connection, you can have biblical authority but I know, Jared, you've talked about this too. I forgot what book it is you were talking about. But it might have even been Tolkien, but how reading these stories, when they have an effect on us, there is a sense in which that story has authority. <laughs> you know, it's forcing the question of us to examine our own existence. I think the Bible does quite a bit of that, actually. If you sort of get away from the you know, for my morning devotions, what am I supposed to get out of the coup of Jehu and Second Kings or something like that? Probably nothing, by the way. But, um, you know, just reading that story, I put myself and their antiquity, and I say to myself, I don't want to be that way. But that story is still having an effect on me. That's a very Jewish conclusion, in a sense. I'm not expecting it to, to be authoritative for my life in that sort of a directional kind of right. way. But just shaping 
a conversation about how I think about my own humanity, which is not secular advice. I mean, our humanity is a very precious thing, and Christians should be at the forefront of saying that sort of thing as far as I'm concerned. Right. So, as we come to a, a close here, I think for me, the, the takeaway, the, the thing that I, I, frankly, I think I learned through processing this with you in this episode are these two ideas of awareness and adaptability, that we do have a framework when we're reading the Bible. And for me, I want to grow in the awareness of that framework, and I want that framework to be adaptable, Mm -hmm. because I think that's what allows me to, again, for me, that's what allows me to keep a Christian understanding of the Bible. Right. And I think, um, you know, my last little statement here jumps right off of that, that what you're talking about is is the history of Christianity and Judaism. And they weren't inerrantists looking for the Bible to answer all of their questions. It was a different approach, and, and, and the adaptability was always there. And I think that's something for people to sort of embrace and just take home with them, that the kind of discussion we're having now, we might have the stuff we said might be crazy. I don't know. But right. the discussion that we're having is absolutely it's integral to the nature of the christian faith and frankly for a lot of people continuing on this path right right because if you don't listen to the james kugel episodes and others you know if you don't sort of the reason this this stuff has survived is because it's been adapted it's it's been, it's moved it's not stood still it's moved along with the people and I think that's that's a good thing to hold on to. It's actually very orthodox. It's very incarnational in its thinking. And, um, you know, we're not weird for talking like this. We're actually pretty normal Christians. Right. We fit within that tradition. The Bible for normal people. Exactly. This is it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. See you, folks. Well, that's it for this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before you go... We want to give a huge shout out to our producers group who support us over on Patreon. So a big thanks to Aaron Clark, Brian Watson, David Portillo, Olumuiwa, Oluwasuni, Jack Wilhelm, Stephen McConnell, Joan Lovell, Zach Robichon, Michael Jack, and Mark Graham. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can leave us a review or just tell others about our show. You can also head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spade, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing director Savannah Locke, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. I lost track of time. When are we supposed to be done? I I think we should be done about now. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah.